I was talking to someone recently who had been in a road accident uh, a year ago. He wasn't at fault. The other driver was charged with dangerous driving, uh, but got off with a fine and six penalty points. Uh, the other driver's back in the road, uh, but the person I was talking to is still in pain. He's still having flashbacks to the accident. Uh, there's little prospect of him being able to go back to work. An event which took a few seconds to unfold is still having consequences in his life every single day. Now the consequences of that event don't affect us, but for him and his family, they're huge. And the event that we're looking at today is... An event in the history of the world, the, the repercussions of which are still being felt today. Uh, and that, that one event is Adam and Eve's sin, uh, which we read about earlier in Genesis 3. It's often referred to as the fall. On that day, the unspoilt world, which we read about last week, was plunged into darkness. Uh, and so the world in which we live in today is very different from the world that God originally created. Isn't that what, what people so often miss? They look around at the world and they say, how could God make a world like this? But of course, God didn't make a world like this. It's our sin that made the world like this. And to understand our world today, we need to understand what happened then. To understand the world now, we need to understand the world then and what happened then. And we're going to look at these chapters of Genesis this morning under three headings. Normally in church we focus in on a chapter or even, or even a single verse. But for this overview series we're taking bigger sections. And so, so we're looking at a bigger section today. We've got three headings and each heading will get shorter as we go on. So firstly this morning we see God's kingship under attack. God's kingship under attack. There is a battle going on between the forces of good and evil, between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And that struggle is one that we must not be unaware of. That struggle explains, in fact, why the world is in the state that it's in. That struggle is no new thing. It has been going on since the beginning of human history. God created the world very good. Uh, we, we saw that refrain uh, last week. Uh, and we looked at it in Bible study as well. Uh, and God said it was good. And God said it was good. And then at the end we get it. It was very good. That is the world that God made. But we're not even three chapters into the Bible before an enemy appears. He takes the appearance of a snake. But he himself is a spiritual being. Revelation 20 talks about that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan. Maybe that raises a question. How can there be an evil spiritual being in a perfect world? Well the Bible tells us that only God has existed forever. Uh, uh, the, the Mormons don't believe that. 
Uh, but the Bible is clear. Uh, John chapter 1 tells us that all things were made through Jesus Christ. And that all things must include the devil. Uh, the devil is not eternal. He was created. But of course God didn't create the devil as evil. And if we, we put together the, the pieces uh, in the rest of the Bible, uh, we see that there was a rebellion in heaven. Second Peter 2.4 talks about the angels who sinned. Uh, and those fallen angels are the demons. The same demons that Jesus cast out of people when he was on earth. Uh, and the leader of those demons is Satan. And that tells us, tells us a few things. It tells us that Satan isn't a, an equal force to God. You know, sometimes people think of you've God and Satan uh, and they're opposites, but, but they're equal. Uh, that, that Satan is equally as powerful in a bad way as God is in a good way. But, but no, not at all. Satan is a creature. God is a creator. But Satan is a creature who has rebelled against God. And one of the characteristics of Satan is that he is a liar. Jesus calls him the father of lies. Boys and girls, that's why it's so important that we always tell the truth. Because lies come from Satan. He wants us to lie. To, to lie is to do something that God cannot do. Do you know, boys and girls, there are things that, that God can't do and lie is one of them. But Satan is a father of lies. Uh, and that's what we see him doing in Genesis 3, verse 1. Did God really say, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Of course, God never said that. God said they could surely eat of every tree in the garden apart from one. And Satan is still the same liar today. He whispers to you that God doesn't really want the best for you. God is just out to spoil your fun. Obeying God will just bring you misery. Going your own way will make you happier. But look at how that worked out for Adam and Eve. Look how it works out for those around us. Behind Satan's lies are the words in the middle of verse 5. You shall be like God. The choice he offers them is who is going to rule? Is it going to be them or is it going to be God? Who's going to call the shots? Who's going to make the decisions? Of course, we can't rule. We, we aren't God. We aren't all powerful. But, but Satan whispers to us, you can be like God. You can be the captain of your fate. And we believe his lies. Life is meant to be built around God like the planets in our solar system revolve around the sun. Things work when they revolve around the sun. If each planet was, was on its own path or, or, or orbit wanting to, uh, to, to rotate around itself, uh, there would be chaos. But God has built the universe so that everything rotates around him and his rules. Disobeying him 
brings disaster, even if it doesn't happen right away. We see that in Genesis chapter 6, coming uh, up to the floods. We're told that God looks at the world and it's corrupt. In a sense, you could say it's the second fall of man. And so God sets his love on Noah and tells him to build a big boat to escape the coming judgment. The New Testament tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He built the ark, but he preached as well. He warned people, but no one responded to his warnings. They laughed at him, no doubt. They thought they were doing just fine, living their own way. Thank you very much. Maybe they told Noah, we don't do God. Or if there is a God, he'll be pleased with us. But then the rain started to fall and fall and fall. And the the waters rose and rose and rose. And they were swept away. They'd had their opportunity to repent. And then comes a third fall of man, we could say. In Genesis 11, we see men and women again believing the lie that they can be like God. They build a tower with its top in the heavens. They say, let's make a name for ourselves. Even if another flood comes, perhaps they think we'll be okay because our tower will be so high up. They think that not even God can touch them. Like the the crew member on the Titanic who's reported to have said, not even God himself could sink this ship. But we know how that worked out for the Titanic and we know how it worked out for Babel. Genesis 11, uh, it's a serious chapter, uh, but but it's hard not to read verse 5 without a smile. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. They think they've reached heaven with their tower. But it's so pathetic that God has to come down to see it. It's so tiny. And then he confuses their languages. So they have to leave off building their city. And he spreads them throughout the earth. Even the fact that there are different languages on the earth. That we can't freely communicate with people right around the world. It's a reminder that we're under judgment. And so any attempt to to bring mankind together, to bring the nations of the earth together, which, which leaves God out of the equation, is doomed to failure. Because leaving God out of the equation is the reason that we're separate in the first place. So so the perfect world of Genesis 1 and 2 has been completely spoiled just a few chapters into the Bible. And we're still feeling the effects of that today. Maybe that raises another question. That question, is is perfect the right word to, to describe Genesis 1 and 2? Now, there's no doubt that, that Genesis 1 and 2, that creation was unspoiled. There was no death. There was no sin. Adam and Eve were, were sinless. Death only came in after sin. But there was an enemy in Genesis 1 and 2. It, it was possible for Adam and Eve to sin. 
the threat of the whole thing being plunged into darkness was always there. So the Garden of Eden, yeah, yeah, we can use the word perfect, but it wasn't perfect in the way the new heavens and the new earth will be perfect. Because at that point, Satan will have been cast into the lake of fire. We will no longer be able to sin. Uh, and do you see that that will be better? There, there, there will be no prospect of it being taken away. Imagine you were doing your first parachute jump. The door of the plane is open. Uh, you're strapped to your instructor. And just before uh, you jump, he turns to you and says something. Which would you rather, he said. Would you rather that he said, there's a possibility this could go wrong. Or would you rather, he said, there's absolutely no possibility this can go wrong. Well, will I take the second option either time. I don't want a possibility of something going wrong. And in the Garden of Eden, it was possible for man to sin. And God, in his wisdom, gave us that choice. Uh, but in heaven, uh, there won't be that possibility of sinning anymore. And that helps us understand a verse later on in the Bible. In the book of Hosea 6, 7, God says about his people, Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Now, covenant is a hugely significant word in the Bible. Uh, the first time we read about it in the Bible it is in Noah's day. Uh, and we can't do an overview of the Bible without talking about covenants. Uh, but there in Hosea, uh, we're being told that there was a covenant even before Noah, back in the days of Adam. Uh, I've put a definition of covenant on your handout. Uh, uh, as a covenant uh, is an agreement between God and human beings where, where God promises blessings if conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. Uh, now, now you can have covenants in other senses as well. Marriage is a covenant. There are two parties. They make promises. Uh, but, but that's more a definition of a covenant between God and man. Uh, and in Genesis 3, we, we, we clearly see that curses come down on Adam. Uh, and, and if there was a covenant there, as Hosea tells us, uh, we know that that's a result of that covenant being broken. But that maybe raises the question... What, what blessings might Adam have enjoyed if he had obeyed God? If he had resisted Satan's temptation? Well, we, we can't say for sure. But I think the, the key to, to think about that is the tree of life uh, here in Genesis 3 verses 22 and 24. Before they sinned, the way to the tree of life had been open, but now it's guarded by angels and a flaming sword. Why? Why has access to the tree of life been cut off? Well, if Adam, as a sinner, had eaten from the tree of life, Surely he would have been confirmed in that sin forever. There would have been no way back. And so it is mercy that God blocks the path to the tree of life. But if obedient Adam had eaten from the tree of life, I think we have reason to believe that he would have entered into a new position 
when sin and death would no longer have been possibilities, he would have passed the test and he would have enjoyed what we look forward to enjoying in heaven. The Garden of Eden, I think we can see it as a test, just like Jesus was tempted in a wilderness, so Adam was tempted in a garden. Adam failed that test. Jesus passed his test. But what we can say for sure is that even though in the Garden of Eden the world was without sin, there was always the potential of sin. There was a potential which did happen of it being plunged into darkness and that is what Adam chose. One writer sums up Adam and Eve's position in Eden as this. Imagine Adam and Eve as soft clay figures slowly hardening. One day their final form will be set. The question was would they harden with hands held aloft in worship to God? Or would they become stony figures with fists clenched in rebellion? And the answer would have consequences not just for them but for the history of the human race. So firstly we see God's kingship under attack. Central to the idea of the kingdom of God is that God is king. And yet there is an enemy. There has been so from the beginning, uh, the earliest days of creation. God's kingship under attack. And then secondly, we, we come to see how, how this affects us. Uh, uh, our second heading, God's creation ruined. So God's kingship under attack, God's creation ruined. Has anyone ever spoiled something you've done? Oh, don't, don't our children get upset when an, an older or a younger sibling uh, destroys their, their artwork that they've just brought home from school or nursery or they've just been, been sitting for an hour and doing and then someone else destroys it or, or pulls something off it? But the grief that, that we feel when something we make is destroyed is nothing compared to the grief we should have when looking at this world. Uh, Think of the definition of God's kingdom we've been using. It starts with God's people. uh, But when Adam and Eve sin, they're no longer God's people. uh, Until they will become so again by faith. God had warned them, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that's what happened. People say, "Well, well, they didn't die. Well, yeah, they didn't drop dead physically right away. Though the process began. But that only tells us that there is a death which is worse than physical death. Once Adam and Eve die, they, they sit, they, once they sin, they die spiritually. Uh, they're separated from God. And it's only a matter of time before their physical existence ends as well. And sure enough, it does follow soon after. Genesis chapter 5 is one of those genealogies in the Bible, those long lists of names, uh, chapters that we may be tempted to skip over when we're reading, uh, but they're, they're there for a reason. And there is a common refrain in Genesis 5 uh, that we should not miss 
uh, as we read. And that common refrain is, and he died. Now just look, look down Genesis 5. At the end, a few verses, and he died, and he died, and he died. It should never have happened. A world with death, it wasn't part of the blueprint. We sometimes say that parents should never have to bury their children. And that is true. What a, what a heartbreaking thing that is for a parent to have to bury their child. But it's also true that children should never have to bury their parents because there should be no death at all. Uh, even uh, the, the death of, of someone who has lived a long, good, happy life that is still not part of God's plan. It, it wasn't the way God set up the world. The, the physical death uh, that Adam brought into the world is passed down to his children. But so is the spiritual death. Uh, we see this in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain kills Abel. But it's not just murderers who are sinners. It's not just murderers who are cut off from God. It's all of us. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now it's true of them, it's true of us. Paul goes on to say that before they were Christians, they followed the prince of the power of the air. And so did we. We aren't naturally good or pure or innocent. By nature, we are rebels against God. And so on the, the, the first uh, grid on your handout, the, the first line, Adam and Eve, they, they are no longer God's people. Uh, and their children will no longer be God's people by nature. Now that doesn't mean Adam and Eve were not saved in the end. Uh, they, they were, when they were clothed with, with animal skins, it's a, it's a picture of them being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Uh, but for them to be saved, for anyone to be saved, they have to trust in the promise because their sin had separated them from God. Jesus told the religious leaders of his day, you are of your father, the devil. And that's not because they were particularly bad. That's all of us by nature. Only through Jesus can we become God's people once again. So Adam and Eve's status as God's people is in doubt. Uh, they're no longer in God's place. Uh, the last verse of chapter 3 tells us that they were, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And at the entrance of the garden, a, a flaming sword w w was set up so they couldn't get back in. The way to God's presence has been cut off. It, it is a devastating judgment. Only the night before, Adam and Eve had been walking in the garden with God himself. Uh, and now that, that closeness of fellowship is fast becoming a distant memory. We saw in our first point that this came about because they ignored God's, God's rule. They tried to set themselves up as kings and queens instead. Uh, and the final nail in the coffin is God's blessing being replaced by his curse. God says to Adam, chapter three, seventeen: "Cursed is the ground because of you. 
in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Adam will face the curse each day as he gets up to work. Work itself was not part of the curse. That's important to know what work was there before, before the fall. Uh, but work uh, will now be a lot harder and less rewarding than it would have been. And Eve will face the effects of the curse and increased pain and childbearing. And they will both feel the effects of the curse in a strained relationship with one another. Uh, immediately when God comes in judgment, they play the blame game. It was his fault, it was her fault. Uh, their relationship with each other affected by sin. God says to, to Eve in verse 16, Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Uh, what, what does it mean to say her desire shall be, shall be for her husband? Uh, well, if we uh, turn to, to chapter 4, uh, we, we see the same phrase used of sin, uh, a sin's desire for Cain. Uh, that, that Cain is warned that sin's desire is for you. Uh, so, so maybe we read Genesis 3, uh, 16, and we think your desire shall be for your husband. We think, well, that sounds like a good thing. Uh, but then we get to Genesis 4, uh, and we see that, that sin's desire is for Cain. And we know that that's not a good thing. Uh, and that's why, why some versions actually translate it as, as contrary to, uh, which is more of a, a, an interpretation that, than a translation, but... But I think it, it, it's, it does try and get it. This is not a, not a good desire. So Eve will be tempted to try and rule over her husband. And he in turn will be tempted to respond by harshly ruling over her. Uh, and, and again, things don't, don't change. Uh, we see that today when... Men and women want to cast off the rules that God has given them. When, when the women want to rule their homes or their churches, and when the men either weakly stand by and do nothing, or else they respond with harshness and domination. And maybe, maybe we wonder why, why churches ha, ha, have elders who are, are female, and, and yes, we believe that's wrong, but, but surely uh, it tells us that for, for, for a long time before that, there were men who were not stepping up to their rule. They weren't, they weren't doing what they were meant to be doing. So God's blessing is replaced by his curse. And eventually the generations go on, but, but eventually God has had enough. Genesis 6, again this time, verses 5 to 7. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And in the next chapter he sends the floods. Uh, such a such a huge judgment that, that Peter in Second Peter can talk about it in terms of the world that then existed being deluged by water. Uh, 
But even that doesn't stem the tide of corruption because it doesn't deal with the sin problem. And it wasn't, it wasn't meant to. It was to be a picture of final judgment. Soon after the flood, Noah gets drunk, passes out naked. One of his sons responds in a very sinful way. The world after the flood might be, be a new world in many ways, but the same old problems are there. The tagline for the, the second Jurassic Park film was something has survived. So you have Jurassic Park, they, they bring the animals back to life, it all gets out of hand, and then by the end of it they think everything's sorted. But something has survived. And in this new world, in a sense, in Genesis, Genesis, uh, Genesis 8, and following something has survived sin has survived the flood came as a warning of eternal judgment god knew that wiping the slate clean and starting again wouldn't solve everything because by nature human beings are no longer god's people Uh, they've been driven out of his place they're refusing to submit to his rule Uh, they're experiencing his curse rather than his blessing Uh, and they've lost the closeness of his presence it is a bleak bleak situation and yet there is hope there is hope Really, that's why Genesis 3 isn't the final chapter of the Bible. It's why we have a Bible at all. Because if God wasn't going to send Jesus to save us, there would be no point in the rest of it. And so thirdly, finally and more briefly, we see the grace of the king. The grace of the king. The sin of Noah and his family after the flood showed that God's creation had been ruined to such an extent that even wiping everything out and starting again wasn't going to solve, wasn't going to solve anything. Uh, and God didn't need to use the flood to show him that, but, but, but he did use the flood to show us that. That, that, a, that a complete fresh start in a new world is not going to help us. And nor is it just by chance that every single one of Adam's descendants is born spiritually dead. If, if we were to jump forward to Romans 5, it becomes clear that there's nothing coincidental about it. This is the way God has set up the world. God has set up in the, the world in such a way that what Adam did in the beginning affects all of us. Romans 5.15 says, Many died through one man's trespass. Uh, verse 17 of Romans 5 says, Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man. Verse 18 says, One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many are made sinners. Those verses make clear that what Adam did had consequences for all his descendants. And those consequences extend beyond being born into a broken world because we are also born as broken people one of the puritans pictures it like this Uh, it's an illustration i've used before imagine adam as a huge giant around his waist is a belt with lots of tiny hooks on it and every single human being who would ever be born was, was born hanging round Adam's waist after the fall. 
And that might have been okay. As long as Adam obeyed God, the rest of us were okay. But here's the problem, because when Adam disobeyed God, he did so with us, in a sense, hanging round his waist. When Adam was banished from God's presence, it's not just Adam it affects, it's us because we're hanging from his belt. Uh, the Catechism says, We sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. We are sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's the way we're born. Because we're born joined on to Adam. But there is hope. Because as 1 Corinthians 15 puts it, As in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Uh, we'll be thinking about tonight actually about uh, the, the, the extent of, of Jesus' death uh, and the, the significance of the word all in the Bible and the different ways the word all is used. Um, so it's obviously this verse isn't saying that everybody uh, in the whole world is going to be saved. Uh, but, but as uh, we have all died in Adam, so in Christ we will all be made alive. The good news is that there is a second giant uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about uh, the first Adam and the last Adam. Uh, and who's the last Adam? Jesus Christ. To be born again is to be unhooked from Adam's belt and hooked on to Jesus' belt. And where Jesus goes, we go. When he perfectly obeys God on earth, we are there with him. When he goes to the cross for sin, we are there with him. That's what Paul means in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, Paul, you weren't there. You weren't at the cross. Well, in a sense, he was hanging from Jesus' belt. Uh, we see a great illustration of this in these early chapters of Genesis we have open in front of us. How many righteous people were there on the earth when the flood came? Uh, the answer to that isn't the same as the answer to how many people are on the ark. Boys and girls, how many people were on the ark? There were eight. Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. But we actually know from the rest of Genesis that, that one, of, one of Noah's sons was wicked. Genesis 6-9 tells us that Noah was a righteous man. It tells us that Noah walked with God. It doesn't say anything about his family. In Genesis 7, verse 1, God says to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you, singular, are righteous before me in this generation. Noah's family were not necessarily righteous. They weren't saved because they were all righteous. We know that at least one of them wasn't. But they were, they were saved in the sense that they were brought through the ark. They were physically saved because of the righteousness of Noah. One man's righteousness saved his family. And it's the same for us with Jesus. We are saved because of the righteousness of one man. The Bible is one story that points to Jesus. Uh, the, the first prophecy of Jesus is, is there in the chapter we read, Genesis 3.15. When God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
It's a prophecy of the one who would come and tread down the serpent at great cost to himself. It's a prophecy about Jesus Christ. On the cross he inflicted a a deathly wound on the serpent. Uh, And he himself would be wounded in the process, but he would recover. He would be raised again. And that's where we're going in the rest of this series. The world is under God's curse, but Jesus came to reverse the curse, to bring blessing instead. And we see a foretaste of that on the day of Pentecost. What was the curse of Babel? God confused people's languages. What happens on the day of Pentecost? The apostles are given the supernatural ability to, to speak the, the languages, uh, different languages, languages that they had never learned. And in heaven there will be no different languages. Those bar- barriers that separate human beings will be broken down, just as all the rest of the effects of sin will be gone. Genesis 3 to 11 are, are gloomy chapters in many ways. Three falls of, of mankind, we could say. But even in the midst of the darkness, there are rays of light. And those rays will become clearer and clearer as the Old Testament goes on until the birth of Jesus Christ and the day of salvation dawns. And that is the day in which we are still living in today. This is the day of salvation. This is the opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus. Judgment is coming just like they scoffed at Noah all those years ago. There is only one way to be saved. For them, the only way was the ark. For us, the only way is Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll close by singing a psalm which takes as its theme uh, the promise of Genesis 3.15 about the downfall of Satan. It's Psalm 91a, Psalm 91a, page 212. We'll sing the first verse and then verse 9 to the end. Verse 8 of this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. Uh, And do you know who quotes it? Satan quotes it. Satan knows scripture. Because as angels he commands to bear you safely in your hands, to guard your ways, lest left alone you dash your foot upon a stone. When did Satan quote that? Well, during Jesus' temptation, uh, when Jesus was being tested to see whether he would pass the test that Adam failed. But if only Satan had kept reading, if only he had kept quoting, he would have been speaking of his own downfall. Verse 9, unharmed your foot will tread upon the poisonous snake and lion strong. And underfoot you'll trample down the serpent and the lion young. The very psalm that Satan quoted against Jesus spoke of the ultimate destruction of the serpent himself. And so we rejoice today that his doom is sure. Psalm 91a will stand to sing praise.